Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin and Anna Chazinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that in 1833, the pyramid at Giza was almost dismantled by the Pasha of Egypt so that he could use the stones to build a dam. That's brilliant. That's amazing. And why did he not do it in the end? He was talked out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Someone said, are you sure you want to destroy the most ancient site in the world? He... um, so this was in 1833, and it was when Egypt was Ottoman-ruled, so it wasn't a local Egyptian ruler exactly. And he was called Muhammad Ali Pasha, mm-hmm. and uh, he you know, did a sort of cost-benefit analysis, or he commissioned one from a civil servant to see how much it would cost. And the civil servant was a Frenchman, and he thought maybe it wasn't a good idea for the pyramid to be destroyed. And his name was Linon, Louis-Maurice Adolphe Linon, and he was really young, it was one of his first jobs, but I think he, you know, the story goes that he thought maybe this isn't a great idea. So he (laughs) came up with this cost-benefit analysis which said, look, this is going to be quite expensive, and some of the stone isn't quite right, and I know it's pre-cut, and I know that's really convenient, obviously, but maybe don't do it. They did actually take some blocks, didn't they, from one of the pyramids? Yeah, it was one of the great pyramids, wasn't it? They, yeah. You can see that big gash down the side of it. So it was the Pyramid of Menkaure, uh, and it was a guy called Sultan Al-Aziz Uthman, and he was in the 12th century, and he decided to demolish the pyramids because he thought that they were um, not according to his religion, let's put it that way. Uh, and they took a few stones every day, and after eight months, they gave up. <laughs> after just like Dad says, just this tiny little gash on the side of the pyramid, because wow. they just realised that these things are absolutely massive. So I was looking up people visiting the pyramids, and because this is about the, them in the 19th century. So it turns out that people have been scribbling on the pyramids for many, many years. And Flaubert, Gustave Flaubert, a great French writer, visited Egypt in 1850, and he was so annoyed by all the graffiti everywhere. He wrote to his uncle, he said there was a huge number of imbeciles' names written everywhere. And then he went to Alexandria, he was really excited about Alexandria, and then he wrote back saying, a certain Thompson of Sunderland has inscribed his name in letters six feet high on Pompeii's column. It can be read a quarter of a mile off. There is no way of seeing the column without seeing the name of Thompson. This imbecile has become part of the monument and is perpetuated with it. Yeah, I saw that. And then um, I also thought, well, let me see if I can find out who Thompson from Sunderland is. (laughs) So I was Googling for, I spent quite a lot this morning doing this, actually. (laughs) But I tried to find people called Thompson from Sunderland around that time. And what I reckon is there was a shipbuilder called Thompson. um, And he started his company about 15 years before this happened uh, and eventually became quite a big shipbuilder in Sunderland. And my guess is that is the kind of person who would leave Sunderland and go to Egypt to Alexandria where this was and maybe maybe that was an advert for Thompson of Sunderland rather than him writing his name because it's in such big writing it's six feet high yeah it wouldn't that would make quite a lot of sense I think that's true and also if he's a shipbuilder he's got the tools to do it probably yes Um, yeah the Victorians when they were touristing all over it they got much more access than we did so they would be able to climb up all the time and that was actually what they did and they had picnics on top so there were lots (laughs) of pictures of Victorians with big picnic tables and drinking champagne on top of pyramids 
Way more fun. Well, during World War Two, it's one of the only stories I know of my grandfather during World War Two. Um, he was very young, but he he got into it uh, by lying about his age. And he was a post deliveryman, and he used to go past the pyramids every day on his run. So he was stationed oh. in Egypt. And on days when there was not much post, he used to go and just sit on the pyramids and have his lunch and just Lovely. watch out. Yeah. So mm. even then, World War Two, I guess you know. Was he World War Two? Yeah. Because they did the same thing in World War One. The Anzacs, they were there, and they used to have races up the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Which are quite hard to climb. It looks like little steps, but obviously yeah. when you're there, they're really big they're blocks. Really big. Um, the first European visitors, they were offered sharp objects to make their own marks by Arab guides, as in, you know, to write your little um, graffiti and stuff like wow. that. Cool. Mm. You don't get that anymore. Yeah, that's like a Stonehenge. They used to do that. I think yes, they did. Yeah, we used to mention... You got given a pickaxe yeah. and a yeah, and a, t- well, a chisel. Oh yeah, not a pickaxe. <laughs> a chainsaw. Yeah. I went to um, Stonehenge at one of these times where they let you go before all the tourists get there, and if you even look like you're slightly touching one of these stones, they are not happy at all. Wow. They're really, really, and even if you try and imagine someone was to do this try and hide behind one of the stones so that the people in charge can't see you they quickly run around to make sure that you're not touching anything those druids are pretty nifty aren't they (laughs) (laughs) don't want to end up in druid prison (laughs) what is it they chop your hands off well i never touched it anna so i wouldn't know of course of course not um a lot of inscriptions on the pyramids are are from the greek roman period Mm. um there is one which says i visited and i did not like anything except the sarcophagus and then another one says, I cannot read the hieroglyphs. <laughs> one <And> a, star. <laughs> exactly. There's, in the article that I read, which was admittedly from the Daily Mail, they um, said that it was quite similar to TripAdvisor <laughs> in its day. So. <laughs> what I find the most amazing thing, actually, about the pyramids is that we don't know what's inside them mm-hmm. still. So we've gone to outside of the solar system, and yet still in the main pyramid in Giza, we don't even know what's inside it. There was that discovery last year that... The, there's a massive chamber inside it. There's a cavity that's 30 meters long and it's above the what's called the Grand Gallery. So there's like two like rooms, chambers, where they thought the king and the queen were probably kept, although mm. they were all stolen. So we're not totally sure. And then they've just done this uh, technique where they use these sensors that sense these particles called muons and see what directions they're bouncing off the pyramid in. And there's this massive chamber we don't know about. And I actually think, which is what one Egyptologist said, that that <laughs> That's where the bodies are because yeah. they said that they think because they put lots of kind of fake things in there anyway because they really wanted to deter robbers so they said oh yeah this is the king's chamber here but actually yeah, I maybe bet that's the where the aliens are exactly and the aliens well hanging out with king and queen well, yeah yeah of course. You would. this that's new chamber cool. that they found isn't it the case that it's so mysterious that they can't even call it a chamber they've got they, they call it the void or something like that <laughs> well I, I think, think they're doing that to pique your curiosity rather than it's so mysterious they just know it's a big hole <laughs> they're not allowed to call it a chamber <laughs> it's not a chamber it doesn't it doesn't uh, fit cool. the word when yeah. I read when I was going to read Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets I'm like well where's the secret it's a chamber <laughs> <laughs> it should be called the void of secrets um uh, I was you, go on. No, 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 please. Do you know what mummy wheat is? Mummy wheat? Yeah. No. So we've covered, I think, before the mummy craze, where mm. in the Victorian times people had mummy unwrapping ceremonies and they had brass bands accompanying it and it was all very exciting yep. and mm-hmm. amazing people like Mummy Brown and Mummy Whoever or yeah. Mummy Pettigrew. Um, so mummy wheat was wheat that was grown from seeds which had allegedly been found in mummy's bandages. 
And this was a craze. People got really excited about wheat that was allegedly from 3,000 years ago growing into proper plants. And there were all these articles published about, for example, ancient cobs of corn. Because, you know, we've got ancient Egyptian sweet corn growing. And obviously it was almost certainly not true. You don't want your food ancient most of the time, do you? <laughs> it's kind of, I can see it's kind of exciting. They'd yeah? also, when they're mummifying people, I think, you know, you learn in school that they put a hook up your nose and they take your brains out and stuff. And mm. they also took your eyeballs out and they often replace them with various things. So they replace your eyeballs with shells or with linen, apparently, or with painted onions. So there is <laughs> wow. the most famous pharaohs were found with just painted onions instead of eyes. Cool. Quite weird. That is cool. But quite fun. Yeah. Like a, like kind of a snowman or something. Yeah. You know, like what vegetable is most like an eye? <laughs> they didn't have carrots for noses, though, did they? God, we don't know. haven't <laughs> checked it out. <laughs> um, I was quickly looking into because this is a famous monument that was almost destroyed if, if this guy's planet went forward. Mm. And I, I was looking at other monuments that have almost been destroyed. Um, so the Colosseum. Uh, that got hit by lightning in the year 217, which caused huge, huge destruction. And as a result, um, they just started pillaging the actual Colosseum. So two thirds of it uh, went and then something was put in place to say, stop, this is now, this, we're keeping this as is. So we got to keep that. The Washington Monument was almost destroyed in, even before it was fully made, when all the materials were being donated. The Pope donated a, a beautiful rock to go to it. Um, but there was a group in America. <laughs> He's got so much stuff. Such yeah. a, such a <laughs> Pope. Generous man. Very oh. Humble though, humble. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm so humble. I can only give you this nice rock. <laughs> yeah, it was Pope Pius the Ninth, and he gave a rock. I'm and so pious. I'm so pious. <laughs> um, and it was it was a party that were known as the Know Nothings, and the Know Nothings uh, oh, yeah. tried to prevent it. So they yeah. So what they did was they stole the rock that the Pope gave, <laughs> and they dumped it into the the Potomac River. And um, and then eventually further down the line, the Know Nothings became the actual company that were building it and bankrupt them, oh. so that they weren't able to do it. And eventually it got they you know they weren't able to stop it. Can I just ask? Is this amazing rock that the Pope gave yeah. still in the river? I think they got it out. I think uh, they eventually found it. Yeah, because um, you're not going to leave a Pope's rock in a river, are you? <laughs> they, yeah, they, I think they. I think some people within it admitted to where it was and where they'd <laughs> How did thrown they it. Know, after all, oh, that it's time that in one. The river. Yeah. <laughs> There's all these normal rocks around them. One so beautiful. <laughs> it's wearing the hat. I think probably. <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that psychologist Herman Rorschach thought his test wouldn't work on teenagers as they were the same as psychopaths. Mm. Yeah, so this is uh, the man who invented the Rorschach ink blot. If mm. you can think of any time you've been shown some weird ink blots, that's the man <laughs> who created them. we all them. have at some stage in our lives, Yeah, right? when we've had our psychological testing, we've all done that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, he, uh, yeah, it was a uh, thing that he, he wasn't sure how it worked. He wasn't sure if it worked, but he definitely <laughs> thought it couldn't work with teenagers because it just was, they were too, uh, particularly 14-year-olds, they were just too unpredictable and, and it was just too similar in characteristics to a what psychopath. What are the characteristics then in a 14-year-old that he thought made them similar to a psychopath? I think it's emotional turbulence and it's a crazy mix up time and there's all sorts of stuff going on and yeah things okay, are Andy. changing you know things are changing growing 
Yeah. You guys need to have some more psychological tests. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so um, I think he did think it worked, but like you say, he didn't know why it worked. Mm. Um, but a lot of the people in Germany at the time did not think it worked. Uh, and they called his blobs crude. Uh, <laughs> we got the blobs. What they called blobs? This is, this is blobs. taking me right back to, <laughs> to my own teenage years, having your blobs called crude. <laughs> and he um, very sadly died at the age of 37, yeah. which as an over 37-year-old is absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> uh, and But then it was the year after he died that they kind of got a bit of um, recognition in the community. Mm. And yeah. still today, I suppose we don't know if they work or not. Probably they don't really. But yeah. he didn't think they worked for detecting personality types, no. really, in the way that they are kind of sometimes used today. So we should say the Rorschach test. It's when you get shown an ink blot and it's sort of a mirror image because it's when paper's been folded over with wet ink. And then you're asked what you see in it. Do you see a cow? Do you see someone being brutally murdered? Do you just see a blob? And he I invented this. I see a beautiful, this... beautiful stone at the bottom of a river. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pope, get out. We've got more patience to see. Imagine if that was one of the results. This person is the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Two options. Imagine whenever you had pope. to get a new Pope. That's what they did. They got this Rorschach test and just waited for someone to say that. Christ, Christ, pointy hat, wafer. He's the Pope. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he didn't think that it determined whether you were the Pope or whether you were a smart person or a horrible person or whatever. He just thought it could um, diagnose schizophrenia. So he mm. was a psychiatrist and he just noticed he'd been really into these things as a kid and he noticed that schizophrenics had different responses to them than normal people. So he just thought, you know, you could spot a schizophrenic. Yeah, he was so into them, by the way, that as a child, uh, when he was at school, his nickname was Inkblot. Not that actually as a word, it was Kleck, but that that was, uh, yeah. So it was a children's game originally. It was called Klecksography, and he got nicknamed Kleck. And you just, you did exactly the same thing. You poured ink on a bit of paper, you folded it, and then you saw what images you could make. It's like looking at clouds or something like this. Yeah. This I didn't really get this. So it's it's not about whether you see, as, as Anna says, a murderer or a flower in the image. He was really interested in what kind of things people saw so... He said there were three categories, which were form, movement, and colour. So form is whether you see a donkey or a bear or a knife or whatever. And then movement is whether you see, you know, a donkey um, offering a man a sandwich or something or yeah. whatever. A dancing yeah. woman. Yeah, a dancing woman is better than a donkey offering a man a sandwich. Um, <laughs> but the, his main interest in all of this was whether the answer was good or poor. So he basically, he thought, right, I think these look like particular things. And if you see something which is broadly moth-like and you say a moth or one of another, you know, reasonably appropriate answer, uh, then you're probably fine. And if not, then that's maybe mm. problematic. That's a problematic indicator for your personality. Yeah. And we should also say that it's not a case of putting ink on a bit of paper and then folding it over. The blots are actually quite specific, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. Um, so they have to look blottish because if they look deliberately crafted, then people might mm. think, well, there's a specific answer that I mm. need to go for. Right. Um, but also he didn't want brush strokes, so it looked like someone had painted it. So quite specific. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And what's amazing, this was 1921 that he created them. So they really kicked off in 37 but they're still used to this day and it's the exact same 10 ink plots that he created in 1921 so even though maybe people are thinking oh we can advance this as a as an idea they still have not gone any further than the 10 he created yeah so if anyone shows you them don't say for instance television because there was no televisions then don't say iphones because there were no iphones you have to think i need to go for something that was around in the 1920s so like the end of the war yeah <laughs> See. The Wall Street crash. You might just say 
so if prohibition. You see, if okay. you see an iPhone or a television, they'll say this man is insane <laughs> or prophetic. Yeah. Um, Have you guys done it? I did one. Yeah. I've done the first few. Yeah, but you didn't it. have the patience to do the full ten. Well, actually, I wanted to save myself in case I need to be tested in future with a Rorschach test because they got really funny about people. Um, so they were published in a book in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of doctors who believed in them and used them said, this is going to completely screw up our results. Because it came with answers of what to say and what not to say. Yeah, yeah I did really it today. Was... Did, you, did, did anyone you... else do it today? We yeah. did it over Christmas dinner last year. Oh, did you? Yeah. What did, so what did you... Did it give you a and percentage? I got taken away by a guy in white clothes. I can't remember, actually. But it was just like, a, you know, it's these days, a lot of people use it as like a parlor game, don't they? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe up in your household, we just get pissed on Christmas Day and eat pudding um, sure. but I'll do the Rorschach test this Christmas yeah. maybe it's more fun well I did it today and it gives you a sickness percentage at the end of how sick it thinks you are you right. did the BuzzFeed version yeah didn't you? you didn't <laughs> yeah. <the> yeah. <laughs> you won't believe blob number seven <laughs> but no I got I got 66% which it says is a little worrisome well, do you know how many out of the 10 were worrisome? Because there's a very specific way that you're supposed to do it. Yeah. So the proper test is there are 10 things. And if you get more than four images classified as worrisome, then it is you might be verging on schizophrenic. And then less than four is fine. And the average is two. So if you look at the graph, so it might be that if you got 66%, you saw three images that were worrisome, but that puts you right mm, in normal. Right. Um, so you don't know how many you got. Out of ten. No, it was uh, it's, it wasn't Buzzfeed. It was something not as classy as that. It didn't really have any kind of. <laughs> but you have a lot of viruses on your. Yeah. Yeah. They tried it on their computers on robots, didn't they? Quite recently, yeah. um, they gave a load of ink blots to robots. Uh, robot one saw one and said it was a mask. Robot two saw one and said it was a pin. Robot three said it meant isolated. And robot four said, this is the Rorschach test. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Imagine if you went into the psychologist's office and said, what do you see here? I see the Rorschach test. (laughs) I just say that for every single answer. Poor old robot three. No one's worrying about him, though. Sounds like he needs some help. Yeah. Good point. So I looked at some other psychological tests from the 20th century, okay. and some of them are pretty weird. Um, so there's the Rosenzweig Picture Frustration Study from 1978, mm-hmm. and this is really fun. So it gives you lots of cartoon images, and it's um, people who are in frustrating situations, all men, by the way, people in frustrating situations, all men, and one bubble from the other person who is the frustrator in all of these cartoon scenarios is already filled in, and you have to fill in your response as the man who is being frustrated. Okay? So can I, it, would it be like someone whose car is being given a ticket by a traffic warden or something like exactly, that? Exactly, yeah. So there's an example of someone on a train and someone, a woman is saying to him, here's the newspaper I borrowed, I'm sorry the baby tore it. Oh. So these are, I think, relatively minor frustrations and in if life. You, if you punch the baby, then yeah. you're well, fine. You have to fill in the cartoon bubble. So I'm about to punch that baby. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a, cons- a mark of concern. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what page of the newspaper was it? Cut as long as it wasn't the uh, crossword. That would be pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so you would write, was it the crossword page you tore? If it is, I'm going to punch the baby. <laughs> Yeah. Or the sports pages. <laughs> or actually the TV review. I wanted to read that. Yeah. So there was that one, which sounds uh, pretty good. There was the 1942 Make a Picture Story test. This is really fun. So it gives you 67 little pe- little people 
mm. in on paper who are okay. cut out and there are all sorts of different people and there are humans and there are there are ghosts there's a superhero there's a one-legged man there's a cocker spaniel there's a policeman there's santa claus there are women some women clothed some women naked and you have to make a scene with them and then you make up a story about the scene and the psychologist analyzes the scene the, the first thing up. that came into my head was you know do you remember the benny hill show yeah. So the naked woman is running, and then Santa Claus and the one-legged man, and the cock spaniel, are all running after him. Uh, sorry. So, what does that mean? I think that means that you fell into a coma in the seventies, and you haven't been able to update your memory ever since. <laughs> um, personality tests did get really popular around that time, though. It was sort of the forties when the Rorschach test and other stuff became a thing, and the idea of a character making you good at your job. And so in the 50s, people would often get tested on their personalities when they were applying for jobs. But they were looking for different stuff in the 50s. It was that era where everyone was quite grey um, and the traits that people wanted as employers were things like being really hardworking and diligent, very loyal, very conformist. And in fact, in the early 50s, the Navy put out a handbook with the proper way to deal with a dissenting colleague if you're in an office or a conference or whatever. And this is what it said. Um, so if a colleague dissents or disagrees... Fail to hear his objections. <laughs> or, if you must hear them, misunderstand them. <laughs> <laughs> the aim is to make him feel like he belongs. It just seems a bizarre way to achieve that. And then it says, if he persists, ask him to clarify his position and then ask him to clarify his clarification, etc., etc., until our lad is so hot and bothered that he's worked himself into the role of conference comedian. So basically, ignore, oh. ignore, ignore, humiliate. Is that the British <laughs> Navy? Yeah, it was the Navy. This is the best way to deal with colleagues. Actually, ignore 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 humiliate does seem like your role on this podcast <laughs> to the rest of us <laughs> the only book i've ever read is this handbook <laughs> okay it is time for fact number three and that is anna my fact this week is that robert falcon scott's dying wish was for his son to get into nature Peter Scott went on to found the World Wildlife Fund and designed its panda logo. Very, very cool. How nice is that? So, um, so this was when he was. This is when Scott was in the South Pole. Uh, he was stuck in his tent. He was a hundred percent sure he was about to die. So he thought he'd write a few letters, as you do. And his last letter was to his wife. So it's 1912. He's cold in a tent. He's managing somehow to get his hand around a pen. And he says to his wife, make sure when you're raising our son, make the boy interested in nature. And that boy was Peter Scott. And yeah, he founded the WWF. Ah. Very exciting, this fact, isn't it? Because two sort of seminal things, mm -hmm. polar exploration and conserving animals, are connected. And I had no idea through one generation. Yeah. Well, two generations. So Robert Falcon Scott, we should say, he made it didn't he to the south pole yeah. with his team but they weren't the first there they were beaten by the norwegians and then on the way back they were close to a depot but they were only about 10 miles away and then he died yeah. and he wrote all these letters in the tent just as they were dying yes and the letter says make the boy interested in natural history if you can it is better than games Mm. Although he was quite good at games in the end because he won a bronze medal at the 1936 Berlin Olympics in the O'Jolly dinghy class of sailing. Really? So he was a dinghy sailor. 
That was one of the big hitters, wasn't it, yeah. in the Olympics? Well, he's the reigning bronze medalist, isn't he? Because they never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> it was the one and only time the Odingi got a got an outing at the Olympics. So that's a cool record. Yeah. He um He's an amazing character, Peter Scott. Never properly heard of him before, but uh, someone who's... At one point, I think, in the UK was a household name. A lot of older listeners might actually go, yeah, of course we know who he is. He was on a lot of natural history TV for the BBC. In fact, back in the day, he was on the very first um, colour TV programme from the Natural History Department. Um, and that was in 1968. It was called The Private Life of the Kingfisher, and he narrated it. Oh, I see. Because yeah. kingfishers are quite colourful. Because you wouldn't go yeah. for the private life of the zebra or something like that. <laughs> yes. which you, they've yeah. deliberately chosen an animal which is quite colourful. Yes. Well, just on that point, um, it is said, I got told this by my friend Simon Watt, mentioned it years and years ago on this podcast, but supposedly one of the reasons for picking the panda as the logo for WWF was the fact that it was black and white. So printing costs, when they were printing out the, you know, oh. with headers would be uh, cheaper. That's clever. Right. They yeah. could have just picked something really, really small, like a microbe, yes. and then it would just be a printing, just one dot. <laughs> That'd be cheaper, yeah. right? Yeah, that's true. It would. It's a bit less evocative, isn't it? Yeah. Save the dot. Yeah. <laughs> it's important, though. Um, one other thing he did, he gave the Loch Ness Monster a name, yes. a proper scientific name. He called it Nessiteras Rhombopteryx. Uh, allegedly so it could be registered as endangered which yeah i guess it is now if i'd said he'd given him a proper scientific name you would have jumped down my throat there and said <laughs> it's not real um i know what you mean i think i it's it was a joke was it or not i don't know if he was joking or not well you know there was that whole thing about the the name that he did give it yeah. so it was a it was an ancient greek name for the monster of the nest with the diamond shaped fin and that came out as um yes yeah and supposedly, when someone looked into it, they found that there was an anagram of monster hoax by Sir Peter S. Oh, well, in that case, it probably was a joke. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, at anagrams, you could, you can, James always is saying this, you can make anagrams out of anything. Well, if you we did to. say this in a recent podcast, didn't we? We did a load of anagrams and people can be very clever in anagrams yeah. and find meaning that isn't necessarily there. Why would he say it's got diamond shaped fins? Yeah. Unless that made it much easier for him to put monster hoax by Sir Peter S. Yeah, so you're I absolutely right. I think he believed it. Well, he, he did, he did send um, a proposal to Buckingham Palace asking if he could name Loch Ness Monster after the queen queen elizabeth ii so it was going to be called elizabeth nessie or something along those lines oh, okay. but for, first name elizabeth for the loch ness monster wow. and uh supposedly the queen did consider it but the uh the people of buckingham palace said uh, <laughs> no 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 <laughs> no thank you so i should say where i got this fact by the way it's from a new book that's just come out called what a hazard a letter is and it's sort of about all the letters in history that either were never sent or that were never properly received uh, or we only found years later it looks like a really really interesting book i've only read a bit of it and i got this from a review but there's another piece in it actually which is about the composer eric sati which i really liked it's kind of tragic but amusing at the same time this is so eric sati uh, had this six-month relationship with an artist called susan valadon and then she broke up with him and that was the end of it, as far as anyone knew. And then when he died 30 years later, they went into his house and they found just thousands and thousands of letters that he'd written every single day to her, but never sent love letters. Oh so he died and like he literally spent 30 years writing love letters. And then wow. he, so they, they got in touch with Susan, still alive, like, hey, Eric had a thing for you and gave her all these letters and she immediately burned them. 
as you would. <laughs> and was probably very delighted that that relationship ended when it did. Yes, exactly. Yeah, got out of that one in the nick of time. Um, one last thing, um, Peter Scott, just to mm-hmm. to mention again how incredible his career was. One of the other things he did was um, during the war he designed camouflage ideas for painting on the side of ships so that you could camouflage a ship in the in the ocean and okay. they they worked so well that two ships that were painted with the same camouflage crashed into each other um <laughs> yeah so uh and, and one of them was called hms broke um so yeah not the best name to that's amazing to name a ship but yeah it did break you know how soldiers used to all dress in very bright colours and then there was <laughs> no? a camouflage? What? Well, you know, the British Army, the, the bright red uniforms in the oh, 19th yeah, century. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that was because most battlefields were so covered in smoke from guns and chaos that you couldn't, it wasn't dangerous to troops to dress uh, them in bright colours. I didn't know right. that. So if you had a, an army, a duke leading a regiment, he'd get, he got to kit it out and he would pick whatever colour he liked, basically. It's like football kits, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And you wanted something flashy. And then as the smoke started to clear from battlegrounds, it suddenly became obvious that having everyone dressed in bright red is probably not a good <laughs> tactic. Wow. I just wonder if there was a period where all ships were extremely bright colours. <laughs> and they suddenly thought, maybe this isn't a great idea. Yeah, I yeah. guess so. About I... football kits, they um, there was once a football game, which I don't know if you'll remember, you probably won't, but it was the first time Man United had worn their new grey kit. And then halfway through the match, they realised that they couldn't see each other because they were camouflaged against the crowd. So they just kept passing to the crowd because they couldn't see oh each other. Oh my God, that's so, so funny. And then at halftime, they had to swap all their shirts back. Oh, Is it wow. an advantage, though, if the other team can't see you? Well, in American football, they have rules that the pitch <laughs> has to be a particular shade of green. And that's because there was once a team who had a blue jerseys and they painted the entire grass blue so the other team couldn't see them. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I love that idea that if in war you have a home and away kit and you <laughs> and you know you're losing against the invading army when they suddenly change their kit to, to home. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that a traditional hangover cure in Mongolia is the Mongolian Mary, which consists of tomato juice with a pickled sheep's eyeball floating inside it. Is either bit meant to be more helpful, or does it, they have to be combined? So, I think the traditional helpful bit is a pickled eyeball because that goes back supposedly to Genghis Khan times uh, the tomato juice obviously doesn't because they didn't have tomatoes in those days right. um, but actually tomato juice I think would probably help your hangover so that probably today is the active ingredient although the traditional thing is the eyeball but if a load of you have a hangover obviously it's very labour intensive in sheep yes. then you have to kill a lot of sheep you don't have to kill them you can just put an onion in the place of the eyeball <laughs> Uh, And I learned this from uh, Malmo's Disgusting Food Museum, which I went to a couple of weeks ago and tried lots of disgusting things. Did you have the hangover? Uh, I did have a hangover, but I didn't (laughs) didn't have any of this. Um, Actually, I did have a hangover uh, on that day, uh, which was very bad because I had to eat things like bull's testicles and shark meat marinated in urine (laughs) and rotten fish and all that kind of stuff and three-penis wine, which that did help the hangover a little bit. Did it? Yeah, yeah, because it's got alcohol in it and it's like hair of the dog. It's like penis of the dog and of the seal and of the deer. (laughs) Wow. 
Here's the thing, though. You went to this museum, yeah. and traditionally museums, you don't touch the exhibits, but you went around eating them. And so is this <laughs> is this more a restaurant than a museum? Um, no. So these days, a lot of museums, they are hands-on aren't they as in you can tr- you can kind of yeah. do little bits and pieces with the exhibits and in this place they have a particular tasting table at the end where you can taste all the things or uh-huh. not all the things but just a few of the things that are on display uh, and lucky me they put a lot of extra stuff on for me <laughs> um, which not everyone gets to have so not ev- everyone gets to have the bull testicles not everyone gets to have the um, rotten egg with a fetus in it you know that I managed to have um, but yeah, it's a really good museum. It's in Malmo. They've just announced that there's a new one about to be opened in LA. Ooh. And they're hoping to go around the whole world, hopefully one day soon. So wherever you are in the world, you might be able to try some of this delicious stuff. It's quite exciting because the museum was founded by Samuel West, who also founded the Museum of Failure, which how often do people found more than one museum? So it had things like failed Donald Trump games and so on, but was such a success that he's had to keep it going. And this is his, his second museum. It's very exciting. The only person I can think of is the person who founded both the Natural History Museum and um, the British Museum, I Yes, think? I think you're right. Uh, Sloan? Sloan? Yes, Hans, Hans Sloan. Sloan. So he's in quite oh. high, um, you know... There's just yeah. that guy and the guy who did the Disgusting Food Museum. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty good. It's very funny because he talks about, I've read an interview with him about setting up this Disgusting Food Museum and he has to sample a lot of the stuff that they get in and he's just, in his story, just constantly vomiting. It's just like, <laughs> I just he doesn't like it. You know, It's not as if it's like no. a weird fetish. He really doesn't you like it. You can't like this stuff. It's just not very nice. The only thing that was quite nice was the bull testicles. That was all right. Uh, I had durian fruit, which smells disgusting, but it actually tastes kind of okay. Mm. But everything else is just, objectively quite disgusting well so he makes a point that a large part of taste is to do with your psychological take on it so if you think something's going to be disgusting your mind sets itself ready to vomiting so he uses the the, um, example of Vegemite Mm. uh, which is the first time he had Vegemite he hated it and thought it was horrible then he went to Australia and at a party it was served on two bits of toast two slices to him and he saw children eating and he thought oh this must be how you neutralize the taste and he started eating it now he loves Vegemite yeah. and Vegemite is in this museum and um, the guy who showed me around who's this guy's co-owner Andreas uh, he said that um, it caused almost like a diplomatic spat with Australia because as soon as the Australians found out that Vegemite was in this disgusting food museum they were absolutely you know, really upset. Yeah, World I War really, Three. I really it? like the idea of Sweden and Australia going to war with each yeah. other because it's mostly a commuters' war, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so you've you've shown us videos of you um, at this museum, James, yeah. and it, you look like you're having a really really bad time. And it's sort of, can I just disgusting. say I had a really really great time? Yes. But the oh, thing yeah. is, I just you know I'm not going to say no to anything. I'll just do whatever you know. And also, he was very much peer pressuring me into trying absolutely everything. He was like, well, if I try it, then you have to try it. Um, and of course, he works here and has this stuff all the time. It's not really fair. But yeah, um, I opened some surströming, which is like a fermented rotten fish, um, which we once had on QI, but we weren't allowed to open in the studio. And um, actually, according to their um, lease, this museum, they're explicitly not allowed to open any of the cans inside the museum. So we had to go outside. Wow. We had a crowd of people watching me open this <laughs> surströming. Awesome. Yeah. And then you did have to recoil from it, didn't you? Is that the one where you had yeah, to recoil? Yeah, it's unbelievably it's disgusting, yeah. It? it just smells of everything rotten that you can think of, like, you know, 
bin juice and rotten fish and you know vomit and everything you can think of it just smells and tastes a bit like that great (laughs) and Um, um, all the tickets to the museum are printed on a sick bag Uh, and in the first three weeks of opening they had 11 cases of visitors vomiting after trying the exhibits (laughs) only 11 which is not an achievement isn't it they must be looking for vomits they are and they said if it's just like a wretch it doesn't count or if it's spitting out it doesn't count it has to be an actual vomit from the stomach for them to count it and the Get the tally up. <laughs> so they have one of those boards, like blah days since last vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> Penis is quite common though as a hangover cure, isn't it? When is it? you sort of read what? about the traditional hangover cures, so it's often dr- <laughs> <laughs> it's often dried, dried and shriveled. I think a, a Sicilian traditional hangover cure is bull's penis, actually. So you also have to be a bull, a dried bull's penis. Um, but in Bolivia, it's also a famous thing. Bull penis soup, bull pizzle soup is a thing that people say they have with hangovers oh. quite a lot. They actually had a bull penis at this museum, um, mm-hmm. but I couldn't taste it. But they, it was like a hands-on exhibit, so you're allowed to touch the bull's penis. Were you impressed? Did you congratulate the bull? <laughs> the bull sadly never made it. <laughs> well, I've been looking up other hangover, disgusting hangover cures. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So... Um, Pliny, the elder, oh, yeah. our old buddy, um, he recommends various things. So he mostly recommends things to stop you from getting drunk in the first place. For example, uh, roasted wild boar lungs will do. Or if you don't have a wild boar, if you have the ashes of a swallow's beak and mix it with myrrh and put that in your wine, that stops you getting drunk in the first place. Mm, okay. Pretty good. But oh, does ruin cool. the wine, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. The gladiators used to eat ash for um, energy. On ITV. <laughs> um, no, it was like they would used to take it out of the hearth and then they would mix it with wow. presumably wine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then that would supposedly help them after a hard day's gladi- gladiatoring. <laughs> That's all. Get home after a hard day's gladiatoring. Darling, what have you cooked me for supper? I'm exhausted. Here's some ash. With yeah. some wine, Anna. Oh, no, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> so John of Gadsden in uh, the 14th century had advice for if you drunk too much. He said that if you're a man, then you should wash your testicles with salt and vinegar. <laughs> and if you're a woman, you should wash your breasts with salt and vinegar. And was he a salt and vinegar salesman? <laughs> <laughs> he worked in the local chippy. He'd overordered. <laughs> And he said you can also eat the leaf or stalk of a cabbage with some sugar, which does sound like the better option. He should have put it first. So these days, I guess you could just put your testicles in a bag of salt and vinegar crisps and that'll have the same effect. Absolutely. But don't do it in Tesco's. Um, duck embryo is another thing that's eaten. So this is balu. Yep. So I had that balut. Did you? Yep. Balut is how you say it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Balut. Yeah. yeah. I had that how was in the that? museum. Um, to be honest, I um, I kind of chickened out a little bit. Ducked out, you mean? Ducked out? I did duck out, yeah. yeah. Um, and when they weren't looking, I only took a bit of the egg part of the balut and didn't have any of the embryo part because I thought that was a bit beyond the pale. You cheater. Oh, no. You found your line, though. Well, to be honest, if anyone was watching, I probably would have done it. Because okay. I am extremely bad with peer pressure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I did taste it. It just tasted like... I've had a um, 100-year egg before. Uh, and it tastes a bit like that. So it's slightly rotten eggs, Ugh. it tastes like, yeah. Okay. Slightly rotten? You would have thought after 100 years uh, <laughs> that rot had really penetrated. Yeah, it tastes like uh, sulfurous eggs, like, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sulfur. Farts. Yeah. Eggy. Farts, yeah. Eggy eggs. What were you saying? Was there anything else about Balut or? No, that that was a hangover cure 
that apparently works. So it's yeah. stuck. It's stuck embryo, isn't it? And yeah. it's boiled alive, and then you eat it in the shell. You eat but it in the shell. But it's not shelly, presumably, at embryo stage. And you eat with the beak. Can you tell the beak's there? You Is can it tell crunchy? it's there, but it's not crunchy, I don't think. And there was a um, Filipino lady who works at this place, and she absolutely loves it. She's like, my whole family eats this. This is not weird. I don't understand why people think this is weird. <laughs> the Philippines are declaring war on Sweden immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have, for instance, haggis. Do they? Yeah, they have. Weirdly, they have like Haribos. Not Haribos, but like other gelatin sweets. Because they're like, well, you, you know, this is made from gelatin from bones of animals. This yeah. is kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of weird. Yeah. It's all just, it is just perspective, isn't it? I mean, the things that we it. find weird, other people eat. We eat equally weird stuff. I would say so, apart from, you know, like urine-soaked shark is objectively strange, yeah. I think. What's the urine adding to that taste? Well, it adds a urine taste okay, to it, I so must say. You could, if you were to have that and any other food in the whole history of time, you would know which one had been soaked in urine. <laughs> yes, okay. So their rules are, um, just to quickly go, they have three rules. It has to be considered disgusting by some people around the world. Um, so not necessarily people eating it. Uh-huh. It has to be genuinely eaten by people as a choice, not through necessity. Um, so it's not things that you can only have because you have no other food. And it must be not a foodstuff invented just for tourists. Right, cool. okay. Because that does happen sometimes, of course. Um, on the fact that it's kind of all about perspective, this sort of thing, there was an FT journalist who went to China in 2011 and went to Shaoxing and was investigating what Chinese people thought of cheese brought over from mm. Europe. Because obviously not very much cheese is eaten in the mm. East. Very many of them are lactose intolerant. A lot drink milk now a bit, but cheese not really a thing. So brought over a whole bunch of cheeses and they find that disgusting or these people who worked in a restaurant found it kind of gross the idea and then ate the cheeses and it was a lot of blue cheeses very strong blue Mm. which interestingly they thought was fine so they thought that's okay and they said it was quite similar to a sort of rotting bean curd dish that they served i've had that as well rotten bean curd and it does it does taste quite cheesy does it yeah yeah. Yeah, they said it was a similar taste so weirdly the only one that they all said that's absolutely disgusting is an animal stench that haunts your nose baby bell (laughs) <laughs> is it is it primula <laughs> what a callback wow yeah the multi-podcast callback that's one of the best it's not it's brie which brie, is very really? interesting to us it obviously is quite mild brie yeah. but to them it's just something they're not used to they find I, it disgusting I remember reading somewhere and I I don't know where it was, so I think this is true, but the idea was when Europeans first went to Japan especially, that was the one overarching thing about it was that we smelled of milk and cheese and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, They say that in China as well. Like all the time they'd be like, oh, Milky Boy's here. It's it's a smell that emanates off a a white person. So in China, the Milky Bar kid is not a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. It's just you can smell it. It's just a a smell they all identify. Do you guys Um, know there's an iron brew sausage? And choked on his. I almost, I just choked on my drink because I'm so excited. An iron brew sausage. So basically, this was invented a few years ago by a guy who said, what a great hangover cure this would be. By a genius. Invented. Hang on, we have had a debate in the past. No, no, Andy. Whether combining two existing things counts as inventing a new one. I will accept a lot of things in this podcast, but for you to say that an iron brew sausage is not an invention that we're all calling out for. Okay, sure. It's, right. it's pretty simple, actually, but still an invention. You replace all the water in the sausage-making process with iron brew, and he says it's a brilliant hangover cure. Um, one guy said he felt like he'd gone to heaven after tasting it, according to the inventor of the iron brew sausage, and I really want to try one. Wow. I do as well. If you are a people who make iron brew sausages, do get in touch. We'll advertise. Hang, free. Hang, hang on. 
Is it all the water involved in the process? As in, has it grown the crops that feed the yeah, cow? Has and the cow been drinking iron brew from <laughs> <Yeah>. a trough? <laughs> it has to have rained iron brew. Has um, the farmer had his, all the water in his body replaced with iron brew? <laughs> yeah, he's Scottish. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to our group account at no such thing or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. There's a very exciting new banner on there showing you the link to our 2019 tour. There's lots of tickets going. We'd love to see you guys there. You can also buy our new book, Book of the Year 2018, and you can also find all of our previous episodes. Okay, that's it. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>